This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com. Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Page 316, the 18th letter. Chai, the life. And the letters are in sequence. The children of the Alter Rebbe, the sons of the Alter Rebbe, including the Mittler Rebbe, the successor, put these letters together. So there is a theme, there is a... Because they were not put in order and dates when they were written. They're thematic. And they're all here to strengthen the Jews' service of Hashem. And the majority of these letters are here to encourage the uh, mitzvah tzedakah, to support Kailul Chabad, specifically to help the Jews in Israel. So this letter, in a sense, is a continuation of the previous letter. The previous letter we read that there are two levels of reward. One is the reward in the afterlife, the soul, after 120 years. And then, we only call it, sometimes it's referred to as Olam Haba, the world to come, not because it's not here now. Of course it's here now. It's here for the souls that are disembodied souls. But it means in the future, the world to come, it means it comes after this world, after the soul leaves the body. That's when the soul ascends on high and is able to receive this reward, to be able to experience and bask in the glimmer of a ray of the divine and then you have the higher reward of Elam Haba, which is, in, in its truest sense, refers to the world of resurrection. And the, res- the revelation of Elam Haba, this will be the revelation of Hashem's transcendent light, which will only be revealed in this world. The soul will have to travel back into the body, journey back into the body in order to be able to receive this revelation of the divine essence, of the crown, the level of Keta, the transcendent level of Hashem, Hashem's infinite self. The Gan Eden is a reward which is generated as a result of the mitzvah. When we do a mitzvah, so the dividends of the mitzvah is Gan Eden, Garden of Eden, the afterlife. That those are the dividends of the mitzvah. That the neshama will be able to grasp and comprehend and experience a level of godliness. And there's infinite variations from level to level to higher level, even a higher level. But it's all within the glimmer of the ray of Hashem. But during the Tchiet HaMesim, during the future and the world to come, during the ultimate reward, that's when the neshama will experience the divine essence of the mitzvah. 
that this mitzvah, when you do a mitzvah, in general, specifically discussing tzedakah, you're touching the divine. Hashem himself, Hashem's intimate self, his will and his pleasure, his intimate self, and we'll be able to experience the neshama will then, the person, will, the body and the soul together will be able to experience Hashem, the divine, the infinite, that completely transcends the whole frame of reference of the universe, completely beyond us. And yet we'll be able to experience Now, the Talmud says, there are those who merit to get a taste of the future, of the world to come, to get a, get a taste of it in your lifetime. As it says about the patriarchs, God blessed them, God blessed them, they were able to taste and experience the future. In other words, while they're doing the mitzvah today, because the truth is, every one of us, when we do a mitzvah, we're really touching the divine, but we don't feel it. We don't sense it. We don't experience it. we barely even aware of it or perceive it. But if a person merits, you get a taste in this world, in this lifetime, here and now, in the present, even while we're in exile. You can do mitzvah. And you can get a preview, a taste of what the future will be, a window into the future. You can experience some of that godliness. But just like the reward of the mitzvah, you have the dividends of the mitzvah, and then you have the essence of the mitzvah, the dividends of the mitzvah is what the neshama experiences in the afterlife. In Ganed, in the Garden of Eden, the essence of the mitzvah will be revealed only in the world to come during the resurrection. So too, today as well, when we experience, when the neshama senses godliness, the neshama feels something godly, there's a possibility we're not just doing the mitzvah mechanically and just doing the mitzvah, but you also sense some godliness. You sense some neshama is able to experience a sense of elevation and sense some inspiration that you're doing a mitzvah, you're doing something godly. So you have two levels. And that's what Alter Rebbe is going to explain in this chapter 18, in this letter 18, number 18. That there is a level, a lower level of godliness, of love that the neshama experiences when doing the mitzvah. And that's attainable to everyone. But then there's a higher level of love which is really not attainable by anyone. It's a gift that Hashem gives certain individuals. A type of love, the ultimate love. It's called a pleasurable love. And the tzaddik is able, Hashem gives him a gift and he's able to experience. Experience the divine essence. The Rebbe Rashab would say that when he's sitting behind closed doors, the fifth Lubavitch Rebbe, when he's sitting behind closed doors and he studies the Lakutu Torah, 
he can sense atmos muhus God's essence. <laughs> now, obviously, who can compare to the Rebbe Hashab? A Rebbe studying the Kutir Torah. But the reason it was told to us, as the Rebbe would said, it was told to us, that means that on some level, we may also merit if we do everything that's humanly possible, on our end, we may merit at least something, at least once in our lifetime or sometimes to experience this level of love. That's why the, that's why the sons of the Alter Rebbe, the children of the Alter Rebbe included this. Tanya is written for every Jew. Why are they writing this? A level of love that's so beyond us. Because if we have the merit, who knows? Maybe we can get a visitation or we can experience at least once in our lifetime experience. No, firstly, knowing that this, it's out there. Knowing that this is the ultimate and when Mashiach will come in after during the time of the resurrection, we'll all experience it. But to knowing that today there are those righteous who experience it today or citizens of the future. Just knowing that gives us encouragement and inspiration. You never know. Maybe Hashem will have mercy and allow us a glimpse, a taste, an experience, something. So he starts out with a higher level of love. And basically, he's going to explain that there is a conscious love. Conscious love is based on our understanding and our self. I love something. I love, I could love something very materialistic, a very selfish love, or I can reorient myself and realize that what I really love is not materialism, what I really love is godliness. Instead of loving myself and continuing my existence and self-preservation, instead, I love what's real, and I love what my purpose is. I love what my divine and godly mission is. So you can learn to embrace and to love selflessness and genuine kindness and goodness based on the realization of what's real and what's superficial. Existence is fine, but it's just a means to an end. Why do I exist? And what's it all about? And what's the purpose? And what's and you fall in love with the idea of living with a sense of mission. And it makes you into a different person, a better person, a holier person, a godlier person, a good person. Instead of living a selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed existence, instead you start loving godliness. And you start loving, you start realizing, you start living with a sense of mission, a sense of purpose. And you realize that that's so much more meaningful, that's so much, real, that's so much more real than just living on the surface. So this is a conscious love. A person could love, could orient himself to love godliness, to embrace selflessness, kindness, and goodness and wholesomeness, and truth. But it, it's a conscious love. 
And any love, by definition, conscious love, what's the underlying premise of love? It's I. I love, fill in the blank, I love you, I love something outside of myself. I love an idea, I love Hashem. But by definition, there is a separation between the I, love you. The love is the connector. But there's no getting away from the I. The whole underlying premise of love is I love. But instead of my I being a very superficial and selfish I, I reorient my I, and my I becomes an uplifted, a, a spiritual I, a meaningful I. But it's still an I. You know, they say when two egotists meet, it's an eye for an eye. <laughs> but then there's a different type of love. And this is a subconscious love. But this is a love that you cannot force, you cannot, you can't, it's not cause and effect. You can't, a conscious love in a way, you can almost force it because you meditate, you reflect, you come to the realization, you come to a very deep, clear understanding. And therefore, it affects you, it changes you. Okay, now that I realize that this is the goal and this is, this is nothing, so it, it turns your heart. Instead of focusing on money, power, fame, on selfishness, self-absorption, I want to focus on something that's real, something that's eternal, something that's reality. So it's almost forced. It's, it's mechanical. It's cause and effect. If you understand something, it will cause you to love it. But there's no escaping. There's no getting beyond yourself. Your I. But then there's a subconscious love. A subconscious love which you can't force. You can't control it's beyond our human consciousness it's beyond our control it's beyond our self it's something that happens by itself it's something stirs inside but you can't control it you can't force it It has a life of its own. Love, I love, I can reshift, refocus, redirect my attention. I, I focus my attention in this direction, so I will develop a love for the things that I'm focusing on. But this, our subconscious, is a life of its own. We don't control it, we don't own it, we don't. It's like speaking to a stranger. I can't force. A response. The person has to respond. There has to be a response from them. You can't force your subconscious. You can't force a response. It's something that has to stir on its own. It's something that has to... And it feels like almost spontaneous. Like suddenly, something stirs inside us. 
and our heart just melts. Inner heart. It's indescribable. The pleasure is indescribable. It's beyond words. Because it's not your regular love. It's not a love that's... It's, an, it's a total experience. It, it's transformational. It's a, like a revelation. It's unexpected. It always happened in, uh, happens in an unexpected way. Suddenly, something stirs in your gut. It's like your whole being shifts and moves and you feel connected. You feel a love that you can't easily put into words. I love, I hate is, is very defined because that's a very external emotion. Love, hate, easily defined. That's all a conscious emotion. Conscious emotions are easily put into words. And it's based on logic, which is ideas and concepts which are easily put into words. And the more I focus and concentrate on the idea, the, it causes the love to develop, causes me to develop a love and a feeling. But then there is the subconscious is beyond words. There are no words. It's beyond definition. It's beyond words. It's so beyond anything our conscious mind could possibly comprehend. And it's always startling. It always has the force of revelation when we, if we ever experience it. It's something that's really there's nothing as pleasurable. There's nothing that can give us more greater pleasure. Pure ecstasy. Pure pleasure. It's a shifting and a stirring. It's not just spiritual. It's also even physical. You feel it. You feel... It's like you jump up even. It's the soul speaking to us. It's our subconscious speaking to us in its own language. You can't force it. You don't control it. We only control our conscious self, which is skin deep, superficial, the tip of the tip of the iceberg. Our subconscious is submerged. We barely even know where it exists. But that's where the real action is. That's where, that's the dynamic. That's really, it's a subconscious that really senses reality in its true sense. But it's so beyond our scope. It's so beyond our, our ability to put into words. The subconscious takes in so much. It's like an ocean. And our conscious in comparison is like a drop in the ocean. The drop could fit through a faucet. Try fitting an ocean through a faucet. It's so beyond, we can't contain it. So we're oblivious to it. But the subconscious perceives reality in the proper way. And when the subconscious reveals itself to us, it stirs. It sh- we feel something stirring inside, something shifting. It's unexpected. You can't force it. It's like a gift. It's a present. The pleasure, the excess, is, it's, it's indescribable. When you have a revelation from your subconscious to your conscious, the ecstasy, the pleasure. You physically feel it. It's so pleasurable, it's beyond description. There are no words to describe the ecstasy and the pleasure that you feel. Something changed inside, something shifted inside. 
people who go to therapy for years and nothing changes. The only thing that changes is the money changes from their pocket to the psychiatrist's pocket. But nothing changes inside. Talking and talking and talking from today till the end of time. And nothing. No change, no shift, no, no movement, no nothing. Okay. I may be wiser and smarter. Now I know why I have this problem because my mother didn't type me probably, probably for this or that reason. So what? <laughs> Who cares? What difference does it make? So now that, I, now that you're so clever, you figured it out, why? How does that help me? It doesn't. So what? Real change only comes from that deepest place inside of us, our subconscious. The problem is how do you access it? You can't force it. You can't yell at it. You can't run. It'll, it'll just remain in oblivion. It'll just ignore you and just, you know, disappear. And you, is all you can do is you can get out of the way. You can create an atmosphere, a welcoming atmosphere. Uh, get your ego out of the way. Because we never stop talking to ourselves. We're constantly bombarding ourselves with words and and we just we not we don't allow the subconscious to emerge. You have to create a space. You have to create an emptiness. That's something that we could. That's something we are in control of. To remove your ego, to get out of the way, to put yourself on the side, create an openness, a receptiveness, and listen. Tune in. Just listen to your subconscious and allow it to speak for itself. Then you're giving the space, you're creating the space, allowing your subconscious to stir and to shift and to communicate. And when your subconscious communicates, the reason it's so powerful and it's so pleasurable is because the words, it does come in the words. Otherwise you wouldn't feel anything. We operate on the conscious level. That's our reality. A conscious level is words. But the words that come from the subconscious, a different type of words. It's a word, no matter how clever you are, no matter how brilliant you are, no matter how sophisticated you are, you would never have thought of it in a million years. You can analyze it from today till tomorrow. You would have thought about it for a thousand years. You would never have come up with these words with this answer, with this solution. It's so beyond our scope. And when the subconscious communicates and delivers these words, you sit up and you jump because these words are like so perfect. Exactly, it's exactly, it captures the whole thing. It captures millions of details in one word. It's like this is exactly what's going on. This is exactly, and you feel a movement forward. Your life hasn't changed. You've gone to the therapist for decades and nothing moved. Not an iota, not a chain, not an inch. In one minute, one communication from your subconscious, one genuine stirring on the, within, and suddenly you made a movement. You were stuck for years. And now suddenly you move forward. But in order to achieve this, you have to let go. It's almost like a deliberate letting go. You have to let go. Let go of your ego. Let go of your self-controlling. 
I'm figuring it out, I'm analyzing it, I'm so smart and clever, and I'm going to analyze it to death and I'll figure it out. And, uh, get out of the way, shah, still, shh, quiet. Stop with the noise and stop with the nonsense. Just get out of the way, create that space, create that humility. I don't know. No matter how smart I am, I don't know. And there's no human being on earth that's smart enough to figure it out. Because it's, we're talking about subconscious, it's inherently beyond our comprehension. It's so vast, it's so huge, it's an ocean. The smartest comprehension is a big drop of the ocean, or a small drop in the ocean. What's a big drop, a small drop in comparison to the ocean? It's a joke. So all your cleverness and all your figuring it out and all your wordy, wordiness and articulation and, and, and analysis and examination, you haven't even scratched the surface. You're beating around the bush. It's the tip of the tip of the iceberg. You're clueless. You have no idea what's really going on deep down inside. A little humility. Get your ego out of the way. Get the I out of the way. Quiet down. Stop your words. and stop your, Just create a space. Listen. Listen to what your subconscious is telling you. Listen to what your neshama is telling you. Listen. Allow it to speak in its own words, in its own language. If you give it a chance, maybe you will. I can't control it. Maybe you won't, maybe you will. But you're giving it a chance. You know, when you have, you can't smell the soup when your nose is in the soup. <laughs> you got to remove yourself from the soup. Get stand on the side. Then I can smell that. We're so involved in ourselves that we're stuck. You're stewing in the emotion. No wonder why you can't get anywhere. And it's the same emotion, year in and year out, decade in and decade out. You're not going anywhere. Same broken record. Because you're in it. You have to step out, step back. A little humility. A little openness to something that's beyond you. You create the environment, you create the atmosphere. You know, if you speak to someone and yell at them, okay, so what's, what's going on? What are you feeling? And after three seconds, you start yelling at them. <laughs> you have to give it a chance to be gentle, patient. In its own time, the person will tell you, just, and they'll communicate and they'll share what's going on. So, when you're trying to communicate to your subconscious, you have to have patience. You have to allow it to speak. And it speaks in its own language. And it's its own reality. So this is a, an analogy that the same is true when we experience a love of Hashem. So there is a love of Hashem that's a conscious love based on our focus, analysis, comprehension, perception, which de- helps us develop a love for Hashem, appreciation. But it's all within the framework of consciousness of I. But then there is a love, which is called a love of pleasure, pure pleasure, pure ecstasy. And it's a revelation, it's a gift can't earn it, you can't control it, you can't... Something stirs from our deepest depth. 
from our innermost core and essence. Something just stirs. It's a revelation. It's startling. It's unexpected. It's, 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 it's very difficult to even put into words. That's how you know it's genuine. Something is easily put into words. People can talk about things that are superficial. Try talking about things that are really deep, that really mean something to us. We can barely find the words to talk about. Because it. it's very vague. We don't understand. We don't, it's too complex. We don't understand. We, don't, we just sense it. I'm sensing something, but I can't put it into words. It's too... Then you hit the jackpot. Then you know that you're, you're on target. Anything that's easily put into words, it's nothing. It's meaningless. Completely external and superficial. When, you, when you're talking about something that's very difficult to put into words, you're sensing something inside, deep down inside, that's difficult to put into words. You're struggling. Actually, it's very fascinating. They did a study. Psychologists in uh, Chicago did a study. They wondered to themselves. They didn't publicize the study. They wondered to, to themselves, why is it that most people going to therapy fail? Most of the time. They pay tens of thousands of dollars. They faithfully go. They're sincere. The therapists are sincere. And yet, it doesn't work. Most of the time, it doesn't work. So they, they wanted to know for themselves. They were scientists. They wanted to understand. So they, they taped tens of thousands of sessions. All different types of therapies. Logotherapy and this therapy. All, any therapy you can imagine. And they were shocked by what they, what they discovered. In the beginning, they thought that it would show up, the differences in the therapist. The therapist is sincere, the therapist is a better therapist. What they found out, they discovered is it made no difference. In all cases, the therapist was sincere, and the patient was sincere, and they were trying to get better. They were obviously paying lots of money, and they were going faithfully for years, if not decades. And yet they made no progress. And when they studied those cases in which the therapist said there was progress, the patient said there was progress, and objective tests acknowledged there was progress, what was the one key that made the difference in the, between these two cases? Those who were successful, the ones that were And the key was so clear, it was so crystal clear, that after the first session, they were able to predict correctly, 100%. There, this patient is going to get better, and this patient is wasting their time. It's a waste of money, it's a waste of time. Don't even bother. What was it? The one thing that they were able to see and detect right away. In all cases, people cried and people spoke and people paid money. It made no difference. What was the difference? Those patients who were in their head they were very clear, articulate and clear. And they understood and knew. and Everything was very clever and very logical and very rational. And very. They got nowhere. They could tell them after the first session, go home, you're wasting your time. Don't spend money, it's not going to help you. Those patients who in their tapes, they heard they were like struggling. They were struggling to articulate themselves. They were struggling to describe to the therapist 
they were sensing something, they were tapping into something that they felt physically, trying to describe something they couldn't put into words. Well, it's not exactly like that. I, I don't know how to say it. I don't know. In other words, they were tapping into, they were touching, without even knowing it. They were tapping into the subconscious. They were tapping into the place of change. And they felt it physically. And they, they just, they couldn't articulate because it does, it's not easily put into words. Anything that can be easily put into words is superficial, is external. It doesn't change you. But when you're tapping into something very deep, very profound, very core, very essential, it's not easily put into words. It defies description, it defies words. And they were sensing something, and they were trying to put into words, and they couldn't. They got help. They were helped. Not because of anything the therapist did. Because of something they were doing, instinctively, without even realizing. And once they realized this, they actually, these scientists, these psychologists, made a whole system. They published books, and they made a whole system. They called it focusing. Teaching patients, this is why waste your time. It's not the therapist who's helping you. You're helping yourself. At best, the therapist is a facilitator. Try a therapist once, twice, and don't waste your time. Like trying a medical practitioner. Try once, twice. If it's not helping you, goodbye. You don't take it on faith. <laughs> Either you feel better, you're not feeling better. You can see right away. You can sense right away. I'm getting better, I'm not getting better. You don't take it on faith. So too, emotionally and psychologically, they, they devise a system to help patients develop this ability. And they call it focusing. It's basically getting out of the way and listening to your subconscious, listening to those senses, those felt senses that are very intangible and very, it's just a sense, it's vague, it's fuzzy, you can't put it into words, and allow it to come into focus. Take something that's unfocused and allow it to come into focus, but it has to come into focus on its own terms. You can't force it. You have to patiently be present, remove yourself, create an empty space. Allow it to for itself, allow it. And when something stirs inside and shifts inside, you feel it physically. It's astonishing, it's startling, it's revelational. You would never figure it out in a million years. And it hits you like a, like a bolt of lightning. That's a, it's so true. With every fiber of your bone in your body, you jump up. That's exactly it. And some, most of the time, it's completely unexpected. You're going in the wrong direction. You, you were climbing up the wrong tree. You you were barking up the wrong tree, you thought it's this, has nothing to do with that. It's amazing. It's just an amazing. But what's true psychologically is also true spiritually. That there is a level of experience, there is a level of pleasure that's so beyond our consciousness, our rational, logical. It's almost like a straitjacket. What's really going on? And when you have this revelation of pleasure, the love of pleasure, it's not I am experiencing. It maybe it's the reverse. It's experiencing me. <laughs> because it comes down into words. I have words and I'm feeling a love, but it's not I love with the emphasis on the I. Because the most refined love, the most spiritual love, it's I. I love. There's an I, there's a separation. And I love you, or I love it, or I love this idea, or I love, I love God. But there's an I and there's a separation. 
But when the, there's a revelation from the deepest depth of your soul, from your subconscious, from, and it reveals itself into words, and you feel that it's not I love, it loves I. The I is just a, an expression of that total pleasure, that total love. It completely reverses how I look at things. So it's, it's a love, but it's a love of pleasure. It's a love which is completely egoless. There is no I. I become one. I merge with it. I become one with it. So I merge with Hashem. I become one with Hashem, with God. I completely merge with God. There is no God and I. It's a revelation of godliness, and I feel this love which is indescribable. So then I become one with Hashem. And this is a love, it's an end in itself. All other loves I love because I'm looking for something, I'm searching for something, I want something, I'm yearning for something, I'm aspiring to something. I love it and I want to acquire it. This love of pleasure, it's like, it's like intimacy. It's, 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 this is it. It's not a means to an end. This is the union, the bonding, the unification, the merging. It's an end in itself. The eye has become completely one with Hashem. My love has become completely one with Hashem. It's a total love. It's transformational. It's, it's ecstatic. It's pleasure beyond description. But it's a gift. It's not something that you can force. It's not something that you can impose. It's not something you can... It's... When you're completely egoless and you're completely humble and you're completely open and receptive, then something, this love could stir inside. But it's on its own terms. The neshama reveals its deepest depth and you get to experience that pintle yid, that godly spark, it's located at the very core and center of our being. And you experience. Your being becomes godly. At that moment, not only are you doing godly and you're yearning for godly things, but your very being, your very core becomes godly. Your core emerges. Your essence emerges. And your very being is godly. And you become one with Hashem. This is a taste of the world to come. This is a taste of the world of, resur- of, of resurrection. So by doing the mitzvah, and the mitzvah is divine, there are those who merit to get a taste here and now, in this world, in this lifetime, in exile right now, they get a taste of the future. That's the power of the mitzvah. And they do the mitzvah with such love, a love of pleasure, a love of delight, that the whole being becomes transformed. They no longer have a struggle. There's no struggle. They have completely sublimated. Their whole being is godliness. That's, that's all they care for. Nothing else exists. They're permeated. Their pleasure, the love of pleasure, love of delight, permeates every fiber of the being, every bone in their body, that's the nature of pleasure. 
It's all encompassing. It's like intimacy. It's 100%, not 99.9%. You can't be intimate if you're only 99.9% present. It's 100%. It's total. It's all encompassing. It's transformational. It's, 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 it's the highest level of pleasure imaginable. And, and even within intimacy, there is an intimacy that you know, intimacy ultimately comes to an end because there's a level of satisfaction. There's a level of of climaxing and being satisfied, and then the pleasure comes to an end. But there is a level where it just one ecstasy leads to the next ecstasy, leads to the next ecstasy. There's no you just going from strength to strength, there's no ending, there's no sense of satisfaction, because there's no ego. There's no sense of I, so there's no ego. So, you know, even in the most intimate setting, there is still, I am looking for my satisfaction. Yes, I am merging and I'm becoming one, but I'm looking for my own personal satisfaction. But then there is the ultimate love, the love of pleasure, where I'm not searching for my satisfaction. My whole being becomes God. And therefore, you just go from pleasure to a higher level of pleasure, to a greater level of pleasure, from strength to strength to strength. I mean, mean, these are very lofty levels. Not only is it hard for us to aspire to these levels, we can barely understand what these levels are, <laughs> but it's important for us to know that this exists, and there are Jews in this world who actually have achieved this. The patriarchs, the citizens of the future, the Rebbe, whose yard site is coming up, 21st yard site, not this Shabbat, next Shabbat. You know, they lived, everything that we're reading about and learning about, this was their life. This was their chai, this was their life. Their whole pleasure, their whole life, their whole... Especially with the Rebbe, it was completely restless and there was no sense of satisfaction. There was never a sense, a point of... It was endless, it was constant, it was never ending, it was never, never, never stopped. Strength to strength to strength. There was, ne- there was never a let go. There was never a, an end. It just, just, it's like, it's like one led to the next, the next to the next, and, ne- and never ending. Because it's not about ego. There's no ego satisfaction. I'm not looking for anything for myself. And so there's a point where you're satisfied and you go home. It's done. Mission accomplished. No. It's, we become such a merger with Hashem, such a merger. There's no ego that. The ecstasy just builds up and continues and continues and continues without any, any ending, without any... So this is, this is the level of love that he's describing here. The love of pleasure. The highest level of love imaginable. But it's not something you can control. You can't force it, you can't attain it, you can't achieve it, you can't accomplish it. You can't approach this with ego. I am going to attain this level. <laughs> it doesn't work. Something has to stir from within. All we can do is get out of the way. 
create a, a receptive environment. And the more effort we put in and the harder we work on getting our ego out of the way and removing all distractions and just being there and paying attention and being receptive and being open and tuning in and listening and being in touch and being there, and being present, the more we work on that, and that is in our control, become egoless, the more we work on that, the more likely we are that we'll evoke a response, that something will stir inside. And we'll merit to get a taste, experience this revelation, this godly revelation, the deepest depth of our soul. The Yechidah the Pintli Yid, the spark of godliness that's located at the very center of our being. I know word, words don't do, just, do this justice. Uh, I guess you have to have someone who actually experiences it, <laughs> teaching this part. But uh, let's try. We begin on page 316. In the middle of the page, it is written. It's based on a verse in Shir Hashirim, Song of Songs, written by King Solomon. It is written, How beautiful and how pleasant are you. How beautiful means it's something special, very special. In Hebrew, we say, Ma. Ma yof is ma naam. Something that's extraordinary special. That this love of pleasure is something that's extraordinary, ordinarily special. He's talking about love of the, in the Jewish people and Hashem. That when the Jewish people return, after the exile, Jewish people return and will renew and rekindle the love between the Jewish people and Hashem. So God says, How beautiful and how pleasant are you, this Ava this love of delight. During the exile, we had the love of yearning. Because we were not one with Hashem. We were separated from Hashem. When you're separated from Hashem, then you yearn for Hashem. You yearn for Godliness. But after Mashiach will come, especially after the resurrection, then we'll be united with Hashem. When you're united with Hashem, you're intimate with Hashem, you don't have a, a love of yearning, you're merging with Hashem. You have a love of pleasure. I, how beautiful and pleasant it is to cleave to you with Ava Tatanugim, with a love that experiences delight in the state of cleaving to the Beloved as opposed to a love in which the lover seeks to cleave to the beloved. There are two kinds of love, each of which subdivides further. The first is a hava beta anuim, meaning that one delights wondrously in Hashem, with a great and immense joy, the joy of the soul and its yearning, as it tastes that Hashem is good, and as delightful as wondrously sweet delights. So this is something that uh, sometimes you experience it out of the blue, you can't explain it, suddenly you don't know where it's coming from. You're just overwhelmed with this feeling of love for Hashem. That's indescribable, you can't put it into words, you just feel it with every fiber of your being. And it just overwhelms you and it just you just grab by it. You like hold on for the ride. It's like you just so this is a tremendously filled with joy. and This sweetness is not sensed as a result of one's comprehension. Rather, this is a sensation of wonderment at that which transcends one's comprehension. 
It is truly a foretaste of the world to come, where the righteous will sit with their crowns on their heads and take the light and the radiance of the divine presence. With any love that's that's manufa- any love that comes as a result of your understanding almost feels artificial by comparison, like manufactured. It's a pale comparison to a genuine love that's just melts your heart and just touches you in the deepest place in your heart of hearts and overwhelms you, fills you with joy and indescribable pleasure. This is a gift that comes from above. It's a gift that comes from Hashem. It comes out of, seemingly, seemingly comes out of nowhere. Just something suddenly stirs inside of you. Concerning this pleasurable experience of godliness, it is written, Rejoice, you righteous, in Hashem. So really it's referring to every Jew has to rejoice in Hashem. But specifically, literally, he's talking about the tzaddikim, who's in a very high level, as we learned in the first part of Tanya, chapter 9, and chapter 9 and 10. So it's the tzaddik who can truly rejoice in Hashem, true rejoicing in Hashem, an all-encompassing type of joy. This is something that only a tzaddik experiences. And not everyone merits this. This is the level of love which the sacred Zohar refers to in the phrase Kahana Bir Ka Literally, the Kohen serves Hashem with the innermost desire of the heart, as opposed to the Levite, whose longing for Hashem surged forth Ratzo and found outward expression in song. The service of the Kohenim was signed. So the Kohen, who was the primary, who did the primary service in the temple, his service was done silently, not a sound. The Levites, their service was to accompany the service of the Kohenim by singing. Song is noisy. Song is, in the heart is, is filled with a love and a yearning and a desire, so it bursts out in song. You express it in song. But it's a noise. It's song. It's a love of yearning. It's a love of desire. It's a love of heartfelt panging. Your heart is panging. Your heart is yearning for something which you don't have. The Kohen is very silent. Because the Kohen feels much deeper than the Levi. His feelings are from the depth of his heart. They're inner feelings. Inner feelings are very quiet, very silent. People who don't speak a lot. People don't make a lot of noise. But they're very deep. And what's going on inside of them, there's so much going on inside of them, it's very quiet. Because it's in a much deeper place. It's not just external, superficial, external emotions. and You get all excited and you're singing and you're loud. It's a very deep internal feeling which you can't put into words. There are no words. That's why it's very silent. It's quiet. It's a place that's beyond words. Because it's the experience itself. It's pure experience. And therefore it's very silent. But the Kohen is much more focused. It's much deeper than the Levi. That's why he's the primary... He's the one who does the primary service in the temple. So that's the level of Kohen, which is in the desire of the heart, the inner heart. Moreover, of this level of love... They said, I shall grant you your priestly service as a gift. The priestly level of love, Ahava, is a gift for Hashem. So it says the Kohenim were given gifts. 
That's why the Kohenim were given 24 gifts. A gift is not something that you earn. It's not a gift, then. It's a reward. Because it's a reflection of the level of service of Hashem. The level of the Kohen was a type of service which is all-consuming, all-encompassing, which is a gift. It's not within our human capacity. It's not on a conscious level. The Kohen was the one who had the window to the soul, to the subconscious. The Kohen was serving Hashem on a level that's so beyond, the conscious level, so beyond the level of words and external, superficial feelings that could be easily labelized and defined. It was a gift. That's why it's a gift. Because it's not something that we can possibly earn or grab or control or manipulate or summon. It's a gift from Hashem. And then the verse adds, continue. A stranger who comes to this manner of service is A person who is not worthy of receiving this gift, it's actually dangerous. A person who's trying to achieve the higher level of love but he's not worthy, he hasn't yet achieved the lower level of love that we're going to learn, soon about to learn, then it's actually counterproductive. Because it could become, it could only aggravate his egotism. In his mind, if he thinks he achieved the level of love of pleasure, it's only going to lead to his aggrandizement. How do we know that he's truly received the gift? that he's truly experienced a divine love, a godly revelation of the soul, look at the end result. If the end result is that he's completely humbled and he remains humble and egoless, then you know that he was worthy, he was ready, he actually received the godly revelation and it's a gift. But if he's not worthy, he's not ready, and he's trying to force, impose, manipulate, control, trying to reach a level that he's completely unprepared for and completely not worthy of. So even if he's in, in his delusion he thinks that he's experienced it, the proof that he hasn't is that he becomes just egotistical. Look how great I am. So then it all, be- all becomes about the I. That means he hasn't truly... That's what he's saying. A person who's not ready is not a koyan. A person who's not on that level. And he's trying to be a koyan. He's trying to, to play with these levels and these high levels that are so beyond him. It's going to be counterproductive. It's going to destroy him. It's not going to help. You want to serve Hashem? You want to be godly? But it has to be genuine. And if you're trying to climb to places that totally beyond you and totally beyond your capacity and you're not ready for it you're not worthy of it and you're not there you're not even, you haven't even done the proper preparations to receive it then it's going to be counterproductive he doesn't elaborate here but he just mentions it because it's important it is mentioned in other places in the Hasidic philosophy this idea that a person who tries to go to levels that are beyond him 
firstly, you could be very delusional. You're just fooling yourself. You're kidding yourself. And it becomes completely counterproductive. You become egotistical and arrogant. It has the exact opposite effect that it should have on you. Instead of becoming a more godly person, a kinder, gentler, more genuine person in the country, you become even more arrogant. So it's completely counterproductive. And it can damage you, and hurt you, harm you. But if you're a kayan, then if you're worthy and you're ready, then you will merit to have these gifts. It's a gift. You can't demand it. No guarantees, but it's a gift. Why? Because you've done all the proper preparations. What are the proper preparations? Continue. But there is no way to attain it by human efforts as there is with the awe of Hashem. When it comes to the awe of Hashem, that we could attain. That is achievable. That we could accomplish. That is up to us. To become egoless, to work on your ego and to become egoless and to go beyond your ego and to step out of your ego and to move it on the side and to create that empty space and to open yourself up. Yes, it's hard work. Very hard work. Why is it so hard? Because it's so unnatural to us. <laughs> Our ego feels so natural. We can't get out of, we can't get out, most people go through life and never one step out of their egos. Never stop thinking about themselves for a half a second. They don't even know that there's a possibility. But it's possible. We can do it. It's difficult because it seems to be counterintuitive. Because the ego feels so deep and so natural and so, that's myself. I don't even realize that it's not, that's not my real self. It's not my true self. But you have to work hard. You have to work very hard. You have to have patience. You have to have control. You have to get to get beyond your ego. It's possible. Everyone can do it. But it's possible. But it's hard work. That's achievable. That's something that we have to work on. And that's what's expected of us. We have the ability. We have the power. We have to use our ego to get beyond our ego. Use our sense of self, our initiative, our conscious self, our control to go beyond ourselves. That we could. Concerning which the departed soul is asked in the next world, did you labor with awe? Did you toil to acquire an awe of a sin? Likewise, woe to the mortal who did not labor with awe as it's written in Rashi. So this is a Kabbalistic work, a Musr work, also based on the Kabbalah that was written in the 17th century. And it's a classic. And he writes there that after 120 years, the soul will be asked, did you labor with all? Because that's what's expected of us. And woe to the mortal who did not labor with all. Because that's something that us, conscious human beings, have the power, are in control of. We're capable of doing it as long as we have the will. We just have to have the will to do it. But if we have the will, we totally, totally have the capacity to do it and to achieve it. Of awe, it is also written, if you will seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasure, 
then you will attain a fear of Hashem. As we learned in the first part of the Tanya, chapter 42, thank God it's on lessons in Tanya.com, that fear is like a treasure. A hidden treasure. You know, you have to dig very deep. You have to dig very hard. But if you knew that there's a treasure there, would anything stop you? You would drill and you would shovel and you would, you would whatever it takes. You would spend a day, a week, a month, a year. Anyway, I know the treasure is here. I'm going to dig until I find that gold, until I find the silver. So, so the Torah says that, that the, the fear of Hashem is like a treasure. And if you know there's a treasure there, you will dig. Meaning it's not easy work, it's labor. It's very labor intensive. Because to get beyond our ego is very, very difficult. We can't stop thinking about ourselves. We can't get over ourselves. We can't let go for a second. So to use your ego, to get beyond your ego, to consciously get beyond your ego, it takes discipline, self-control, patience, focus, concentration. It's tremendous effort, tremendous work. But if you know there's a treasure there, I'll do anything. So I'm not afraid of the hard work. So the fear of Hashem, that sense of egolessness, is something that's a treasure. And it's attainable, it's achievable, it's up to me. No excuses. I'm not looking for excuses. I want to do it. If you're walking up a mountain with a heavy load of stones and someone offered you another sack of stones to carry, you would say, are you kidding? I can barely manage with this. But imagine if you were climbing a mountain with a sack of gold and diamonds and pearl and gems and rubies and you can barely move. And someone offered you another sack <laughs> with pleasure. Are you kidding? <laughs> Only one? Give me another two. <laughs> of course it's hard work, but that's called work. That's pure pleasure. It's a treasure. The fear of God, that's a treasure. That's what connects us. So, if you know that the treasure is there, you know it's attainable, you roll up your sleeve and you get to work. So that depends on us. That's our effort. We have to work on it. God can't do that for us. To become egoless, we have to do it ourselves. We have to, to attain that fear and that awe and that sense of Hashem, to get out of the way, get our egos out of the way. That's something we have to do. And he's telling us right up front, this is hard work. This is not, not a walk in the park. You're going to sweat. You're going you're to earn that treasure. But I don't mind, because it's a treasure. So to get beyond our egos is not easy. Because it's so natural and comes roaring back every moment. You have to silence yourself, quiet, remove yourself, create that empty space. But once you do it, there's nothing more rewarding. Just that relief. For a person who's never gone beyond himself to step out of his own ego, that alone is the greatest relief. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a burden off your chest, like a, a stone off your chest. That alone, you already feel a thousand pounds lighter already. 
that heaviness that, that, that almost chokes us, that ego, and I, and I, and I, and it's the source of all our misery, 99% of human misery. If you just get beyond that, it's a, you're already ahead of the game. You're already in a great place. But he's going to say, this is just a preparation. This just creates the environment, a friendly, conducive environment, creates an empty space that allows your neshama to now stir and shift and give you and create this pleasurable love which you can't force. That you can only get out of the way and allow your neshama in to emerge and to surface and to speak its own language. To experience godliness. But the preparation for that, the fear of Hashem, the awe of Hashem, the egolessness part, that's up to us. No one's going to do that for us. No one could do that for us. That you have to chisel away and you have to work hard. But I'm not getting coal. It's not a coal mine. This is a gold mine. This is a silver mine. This is this is a treasure. It shows that it requires great and intensive exertion as when one searches for treasure. It has already been explained that when one digs for a treasure that he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt lies buried in the depths of the earth, he will seek it tirelessly knowing with certainty that the fear of heaven lies buried in the understanding of the heart of every Jew will lead to similar untiring efforts in revealing this spiritual treasure. However, this only applies to the fear and awe of Hashem. Even the loftiest degree of awe, Yira, Elah, is attainable through man's efforts. So we know we have the capacity. It's there in our hearts. We have the capacity of Yira Hashem, of awe of Hashem, we just have to dig. Some people don't have to dig so deep. Some have to dig deeper. Some have to dig even deeper. But it's there. The treasure is there. Every one of us has that capacity of Yira Tremayim, Yira Tashem, By contrast, this great love, Ahava Anuam, comes upon a man by itself from above without his preparing and intending himself for it, but only after he has exerted himself in Yira Haram. To attain the higher level of fear wherein he stands in awe of Hashem's majesty. And after he has attained the maximum he is able to attain in that awe according to the level of his soul, then of itself the Ahavav, the Anugam, comes from above to dwell and to become united with the awe. For it is the way of the man to search for the woman as explained in Lakute Amar Amaram. In part 1, chapter 43, the Alta Rebbe explains that love is termed man or, or male, while fear is termed woman, as in the verse, a woman who fears Hashem. In spiritual terms, it is the way of the man to search for the woman, means that the love of Hashem searches for the fear of Hashem and dwells with it. Just like the man actively searches for the woman to be united, so too... The only when we have the level of fear of Hashem, once we've become egoless and we've achieved it on our own, so now we are receptive. Now we are receptive, we're receptacle. Then comes along the masculine energy and wants to unite. Once we've become open and we're receptacle and we're able to receive, now the love of Hashem 
Now we're open and we're receptive. Now we're able to receive. The love of Hashem is looking to reveal itself. This love of pleasure is looking to emerge, looking to surface. But it's looking for a friendly place. It's looking for a place that's receptacle, that's open to receive, that's egoless, that's, that's open and ready. So when a person works very hard and is completely open to receive, then they can merit, then they'll merit the stirrings of the love of pleasure, of love of delight, this gift. So yes, you can't force it, you can't impose it, you can't control it. And it is a gift. But when does Hashem give us the gift? Only if we are perfect, we've achieved whatever we can achieve. And that's what he's going to explain, we'll learn next week that after you've achieved the lower level of love, you've reached the highest, the maximum that's humanly possible on a conscious level, and you also have the level of yira, the level of egolessness, of humility, of openness, and, and listening and being open and receptive to something greater, to the soul, to receive the soul in its own terms, as a soul experiences itself, as it experiences its pleasure and delight with Hashem, and then you can receive that love, something will stir inside, you'll receive that love, and then you will merge and you will become one with Hashem. So it's interesting that he starts out with this love. He starts out with a love that's seemingly unattainable, that's seemingly for a select few, for the tzaddik, for the perfect one, for the person who has achieved already the lower level of love and he's already achieved even the highest level of yira, of awe. And then he's open to the reward, a taste of the reward, a love which is an end in itself, a love where you become one with Hashem, you merge with Hashem, and just you being one with Hashem, inseparable from Hashem. But the human being becomes one with Hashem. Instead of the ego and I, you become absolutely one with Hashem. And then he goes to the next level, which is achievable for every one of us. But he starts out with this level. Because this is really the essence of what a mitzvah is. A mitzvah is divine. And every time we do a mitzvah, we are touching the divine, even though we don't feel anything. We do 630 mitzvahs and we don't feel anything. But it doesn't change the reality. It doesn't change the fact. The fact is, that every time we do a mitzvah, we're touching the divine. Even though we are clueless, we have no sense of what's happening. No idea what's going on. But it doesn't change the reality. So the tzaddik, the fact that the tzaddik is able to achieve such a level of love, which comes directly as a result of the mitzvah, the divine essence of the mitzvah. What does that tell us? That every one of us, when we do a mitzvah, all the time, any Jew, anywhere in the world, all the time, when we're doing any mitzvah, any mitzvah, we are really touching the divine. We are becoming one with the divine. Just because we don't feel it doesn't change the reality. The tzaddik gets a taste, a revelation of the reward. He gets a taste of the revelation of the divine essence of the mitzvah. But the truth is, this is what happens every time any one of us does a mitzvah, any time of the day and night just because we don't feel it, and we don't sense it, we don't experience it, and we're not jumping from joy. 
and we don't feel this overwhelming joy, we should, but we don't feel it. But it doesn't change the reality. Because the reason for the rejoicing and the reason for the pleasure is because the mitzvah is of the divine essence. We're touching the divine essence. So the, so the tzaddik is just a revelation. You want to know what really happens when you do a mitzvah? Look at the result of the mitzvah. The fact that the tzaddik merits such a tremendous level of love as a result of the mitzvah, this tells you what the mitzvah really is. And it's something we can aspire to. It's inspiring to know that there are Jews who do, do feel this. It's inspiring to know that very soon, during the era of resurrection, we'll all experience it. And who knows, with Hashem's help, maybe we'll get a glimpse of it even now, in the here and now. We close the door and study the Torah, maybe we'll get a sense to be able to sense a glimpse, a glimmer of what the Rebbe Rashab sensed. It's the only reason it was told to us. So even knowing this is already inspiring. It inspires us to intensify our studying of Torah, doing of mitzvah, the pleasure, the joy, the excitement, the thrill that we should have when we do a mitzvah. We should realize what's, what's going on when we're doing a mitzvah. It's not a ritual. It's not a custom. It's not... This is, this is it. This is the essence of Hashem. This is... And the tzaddik gets a taste of it. That's all it is, is a taste. The essence is, the essential thing is doing the mitzvah. The reward is merely a reflection of the divinity of the mitzvah. It gives us a revelation. It gives us an explanation. It gives us some revelation, some sense of what really a mitzvah is—the power of a mitzvah. That should light a fire in us, all of us, today, here and now. Increase in mitzvah. Increase in Torah. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.